very humbled to see the huge turnout to hear some obscure person from the Southern Hemisphere speak. Um, you'll notice I have a very strong Southern accent, I apologise for that, but um, okay. I'm talking today about the problem of evil commands, or what I call the problem of apparently evil commands. And the background to this is that in recent years, a number of philosophers have defended a view which is often called a divine command theory of ethics. This is the idea basically that right and wrong is grounded in God's commands. You know, Rightness and wrongness consist in agreement and disagreement respectively with God's commands. And this is a central part of the moral arguments you hear people like Paul Copan and William Lane Craig put forward and so on. Now in his famous book on this topic, um, Yale philosopher Robert Adams noted that a convincing defense of this view must address our darkest fear about God's commands, the fear that God may command something evil. Now when he wrote this, it was before 9-11 and it was a fairly abstract question, but I think post 9-11 there's been a shift in our culture where this really bothers people um, for obvious reasons. So I want to... Um, I'm going to, my, my talk's going to be um, more philosophical than some other talks I've done, but um, I'm going to really sketch a kind of response to this, to this whole problem and more give you a framework for thinking about it a bit. And so first thing, I'm going to look at the abstract version of the, of the objection at a sort of abstract philosophical level. And then second, I want to look at one sort of concrete version of it. And then I'm going to give, I'm going to sketch some responses. I'm not going to do a comprehensive um, thing here today. I can't go through all the issues involved. But I want to sketch, I think, what some of the issues are in wrestling with these questions to help you at least have some kind of thinking about the kinds of questions you should be asking about it and the kind of things you should be thinking and the kind of pitfalls you should avoid in thinking about it, hopefully. So let's get down to business. Let's look at the abstract evil commands objection. When it comes up on the PowerPoint. What's going on there? Okay, I'll just read it then. Oh, there it is. Great. Okay, so the evil commands objection goes like this. This is from... Um, Robert Garcia and Nathan King in, their, in a recent book they wrote on this topic, well they, was, they were the editors of it, but it says, a divine command theory, which they call DCT, implies that it's possible for any kind of action such as rape to be wrong. But it seems intuitively impossible for rape not to be wrong. So, a divine command theory is at odds with our common sense intuitions about rape, right? So you see the abstract argument put out quite nicely there. And you can spell this argument out in terms of premises. So the first premise would be that if a divine command theory is true, then if God commanded us to rape, we'd be required to rape. Second premise, this is claim that this is absurd. And the third premise is, well, God could do this. Surely God could command us to do this. And so therefore, it's absurd. And you'll see people like Sam Harris use this kind of argument in his debate with Bill Craig. If any of you heard it, this is the kind of argument. Now, the key premise in this argument or this objection is the third one, what's called, what I call premise three. Now if you think about it, this premise is, I think, is somewhat dubious. Because when people in the Christian tradition are talking about God, they're not just talking about anyone. They mean to explicitly identify the commands um, of God with a God who is understood a particular way, understood as an all-powerful, all-knowing, loving and just, immaterial person who created the universe. So three would hold only if it was possible for a person with those attributes to command rape. Right? And of course, when you think about it, the very reason these skeptics cite this objection is they think, look, no informed, morally sensitive person would ever endorse this. 
So by raising the objection, they're actually implicitly assuming that one of the premises is false. All right, you see that? And you can push it this way. I mean, let's assume for the sake of argument that, let's, I mean, even let's assume for the sake of argument that three was true. I'm not saying it is, but suppose for the sake of argument three was true. Suppose it was true that a loving and just, fully informed person could command rape. Well, if that was the case, then two would be false, right? Because if it was actually true that there were possible situations where a loving and just, fully informed person could endorse rape, then wouldn't it be the case that there were possible situations in which rape was loving, just, and something an informed person could do? So in other words, three and two are in obvious conflict with one another. They can't both be the case. And so this objection assumes that a perfectly good being would command horrible things. But yet the objection is based on the intuition that that can't happen. So I don't think this objection as it's phrased works. Now there is a predictable sort of um, response to this. And this is the response that, well look, um, if you take this line, God can't be good. God can't be good in any meaningful sense. So Peter van Ingwagen, for example, suggests, well look, if um, a person is only morally good, if he has duties and acts in accord with them. But if, if duties are grounded in God's commands, then that would mean that God was issuing himself commands and obeying them, and that seems kind of strange or absurd. So, so there's this kind of claim that on this view, God can't be good. It's like saying God does what he wants, right? It's this kind of idea that it, it just doesn't work. Um, now, there's a grain of truth to this suggestion. It's, I think it's true that if God um, has no duties, you know, then obviously this, this creates a problem. But notice you don't have to understand God's goodness in terms of God fulfilling duties. You know, um, you don't have to understand the phrase God is good in terms of, well, God has duties that he follows. Many philosophers and theologians have suggested an alternative. God's goodness should be understood in terms of having certain character traits, being loving, truthful, gracious, merciful, and so on. Now, even if God doesn't have duties, doesn't follow he can't have these traits. It might mean he doesn't have a duty to have these traits. But it doesn't follow that God can't have these traits, right? You know, the fact that I'm not an, under an obligation to do something or under an obligation to be a certain way doesn't mean I can't be that way. You know, you know I might not have an obligation to go to the supermarket. It doesn't mean I can't cross the road and go to the supermarket if I want to. Right? So what this means is, is that we can't think of God's goodness in terms of God fulfilling duties. But it doesn't mean we can't say God is just. We can't say that, we can't say that he's loving, that we can't say he's merciful and so on. So I think that the kind of abstract version fails. The abstract version fails because it assumes that a being that has certain attributes, such as being loving and just and what have you, could command rape. And the objector, in raising the very question, is trying to put forward an example that no, something that no loving, just person could possibly object to, could endorse, that kind of idea. So I don't think this argument works. But it does create further issues. And that is this. Doesn't this mean that you can't attribute to God a command that you think is wrong. And doesn't that create a new problem for Christians? And I'll give you an example. A professor at Auckland University, or a retired professor at Auckland University I've had some interaction with, is a guy called Raymond Bradley. And Raymond Bradley has a very famous article and lecture that he used to give at Auckland University, um, where he sort of spells out this. He, he stands up and he says he's going to elaborate what he calls principle P1. And he says, it's morally wrong to kill men, women, children who are innocent of any serious wrongdoing. This is what he says, right? And then he cites two cases from the Old Testament 
the book of Joshua and the book of Samuel chapter 15. And in these passages, according to Raymond Bradley, God commanded Joshua to kill the old, the young, little children, maidens, and women. Right? And then he basically goes on to suggest that therefore any person who accepts that moral obligations are grounded in God's commands faces this problem. Firstly, he says, they're going to have to grant that what God proposes for our belief, including beliefs about what to do, is what we ought to do. Secondly, he says, in his holy scripture, God proposes for our belief that he's commanded us to perform acts that violate P1, right? He just cited the passages. Three, he says, but surely it's morally wrong for someone to command these things. And God is omnipotent, omniscient, morally perfect, and a morally perfect being will not do anything that's morally wrong. And if you just reflect on those five ideas, this is what he says, for a little while, you'll see that these entail a contradiction. Right? You can see that. It's pretty clear, right? And this is a kind of line of argument that's being pushed a lot by the new atheist people like Sam Harris, Christopher Hitchens, and what have you. They say, well, look, you know, it's all very well to say that God would not command evil, but doesn't, aren't you committed to saying that God commanded certain things like killing children? Doesn't the Bible say that? And if you accept the Bible as the word of God, then you're saying that God commanded that. And so you've got this kind of problem. You say this perfectly good being is commanding this, and yet this thing strikes you as obviously immoral. And so that's a more concrete version of the objection. And there's a sense in which it's a little bit more worrying. Um, so how would, how would someone respond to this? Well, I'm going to sketch um, several different lines of response that you might take. I'm not going to develop them all fully, but I'm just going to sketch several sort of lines of response that I think people need to think about. And I may end up writing a book on this sometime that you can read. But, um, <laughs> but, um, but at the moment, I'm just going to sketch it. Okay. Now the first thing to note, and this is an, an important to note just for the sake of focus, is that claiming that God exists and claiming that, your, that moral obligations are grounded in His commands does not mean that you hold that Scripture is inerrant. You're not necessarily committed to that. See, Bradley's first, um, Bradley in this, this argument assumes that people are committed to two. He assumes that anyone who believes in God is committed to believing in two. You know, that in his holy scriptures, you know, in his holy scriptures, God proposes for our belief that he commands us to perform acts which violate moral principle P1. And he actually bases this on an article by Alvin Plantinga. I don't know if you've heard of Alvin Plantinga, he's a very famous Christian philosopher. And Alvin Plantinga is famous for saying, Scripture is inerrant, God makes no mistakes. What he proposes for our belief is what we ought to believe. And you'll see that Bradley's phrased his um, premise precisely on that. The point to note that nothing about holding to a divine command theory per se commits a person like Plantinga, sorry, commits someone to holding Plantinga's view on biblical inerrancy. Some divine command theorists obviously do hold this, but many do not. A person could, for example, claim that the wrongness of an action is determined by God's commands, but that we know what is right and wrong through some other source in the Bible. He might hold to another revelation, or he might hold that you know it through conscience or something like that. Now, I'm not saying I hold these views, but the point is, is that it's quite consistent with holding that God exists. And it's quite consistent with holding that um, moral obligations are grounded in his commands and to reject biblical inerrancy. You can do those two things are com compatible stances. I'm not saying that I do that, but they're compatible stances. And so it's important, firstly, to not let the skeptic prove too much with his argument. You know, if the skeptic shows 
that there are five propositions that are inconsistent, it doesn't follow from that that God doesn't exist. It just follows from that that those five propositions are inconsistent. Right. And you'll see this in debates Sam Harris and co have with Bill Craig. They'll sometimes bring these things up and you'll see Craig say, yeah, but look, we're talking tonight about the existence of God. Or we're talking tonight about whether God is the foundation for morality. We're not actually talking about biblical inerrancy. That's an important topic, but it's a different issue. And so one thing is not to get distracted. You know, not to let people take the issue all over the place. But of course, at the same time, most of us are still committed to biblical inerrancy or a strong view of biblical authority. So we need to, need to come up with some, some, some other answers. Um, but a second thing to note here is that even if you accept that the Bible is authoritative, it does not follow that you hold that from that alone, that you have to believe that God in his scripture proposes for your belief that he commands you to perform acts which violate moral principle P1. Now Bradley thinks he does. you do. He says, consider the case, this is what he says, it's really rhetorical. Consider the case in which God commands Joshua to slaughter virtually every inhabitant in the land of Canaan. The story commences in chapter 6 of the book of Joshua, telling how the hero and his army conquered the ancient city of Jericho, where they destroyed everything in the city. Then in chapters 7 through 12, it treats us to a chilling chronicle of the 31 kingdoms and all the cities therein that fell victim to Joshua and God's genocidal policies. Time and time again, we read that the phrase is, he utterly destroyed every person who was in it, and he left no survivor. Now, first thing to know, so what Bradley does here is he pulls the passages out of, out of the Bible and says, look what it says. Right? But there is a sense in which his argument here is too quick. First, he's assuming that he reads this passage. He says, well, he reads this passage, and then he says, this means God's commanding us to do this today. Right? Saying, look, God commanded Joshua to do this. Therefore, God proposes for our belief that he commands us to violate this principle. Right? Um, now, this doesn't follow. Even if God does command Saul or Joshua to do something, it doesn't follow he commands us to do it. God commands Jonah to go to Nineveh and preach to the Assyrians. It doesn't follow from that that I'm under an obligation to go to Nineveh and preach to the Assyrians. All right? He tells Abraham to leave Ur of the Chaldees. It doesn't follow from that that I'm commanded to leave Ur of the Chaldees. Right? So the first thing is, again, you need to be careful what does the text say. Even if you take this text totally the way Raymond Bradley does, what it says is that God commanded a specific person at a specific time in history to do something. All right? Um, and that's important because people like William Lane Craig and, and others who, who discuss this issue will note that if you read the commands about the Canaanites in the book of Deuteronomy, it's very clear that they're addressed to the Israelites alone. In fact, it occurs in a context where it says, when you fight against the other countries, don't do this. But when you fight against the other countries and you besiege another country, you know, the men and the women, uh, you spare them and you do this and you do this and this. Except in this particular area, in this particular campaign. Right? So when you look at it in context, it's not a command to everyone to start with. So there is no warrant, even if you accept these passages the way Raymond Bradley does, for saying, well, this is this kind of charter for Christians to go around committing genocide today and killing everyone who disagrees with them and so on. Right? That's a total misreading of the text, even if you take it the way they take it. Okay. So people who, who can, and many do, think that God in certain points in history has commanded things like this, but they are extremely rare, that they, he doesn't, doesn't necessarily, they're not necessarily commands that are repeated to all people today, and they may have theological reasons for thinking that outside of the Bible, prophetic utterances of this sort don't occur. 
You know, the commitment to the idea that the Bible is, the canon is closed, in some sense means that you have to hold that there is a certain type of prophetic revelation that no longer occurs. Otherwise, we would have to keep adding books to the Bible every time a prophet arose on the scene. Right? So, so the fact that one time in history a prophet issued a command to Israel for a particular situation which was not a general command does not mean that Christians are expecting this kind of justification today, here and now, in New Testament, post-New Testament times. Okay. Okay, and this brings me to a, a second point that I'll make that I've developed in more detail with some works of Paul Copan everywhere, and that is a little bit about how we read and interpret the Bible when we read passages like this. Let's return to Plantinga. Plantinga was saying that the Bible was an errant because it's God's word, right? But Plantinga goes on to note that accepting that God is the primary author of Scripture has implications for how you interpret it. He gives you a couple of them. One is that if the primary author of Scripture is God, then this impels you to treat the whole Bible more like a unified communication than a miscellaneous series of books. Think about how you read a book written by one author is very different to the way you might read a series of books written by different authors, right? Um, and second, when you're reading the Bible, you're looking for what God is teaching with the text. So what is the primary single author behind it teaching with the text? And that's not always the same as what the specific human author of that particular piece of scripture may have had in mind. Not always the same. Particularly if the Bible has gone through a process of editing, as some scholars think. So some scholars think, I don't necessarily agree with this, but some scholars think there were little bits and pieces which were later brought together into a single whole. Well, when, I, when somebody brings different sources together and creates a new document, it would be very foolish to read what the new document says in terms of what the previous sources said. You know, I'd hate when I submitted my PhD thesis for publication for the people who read the PhD thesis to be wondering, I wonder what um, the draft Matt used to write this said. You know, and all those bits he cut out and the new context he put it in, I'll ignore that and I'll ask what the draft said. That would be a really bad way of reading my thesis. And yet a lot of people approach the Bible this way. So you have to read it as a unified collection and you have to ask, why has God brought these passages together into a whole this way? What's he saying? And Nicholas Waldersdorf develops this in more detail. And um, he has a view of divine authorship, which um, Bill Craig also has, which understands biblical ins um, inspiration in terms of appropriation. He states, All that is necessary for the whole Bible to be God's book is that the human discourse it contains has been appropriated by God as one single book for God's discourse. So the idea is that God appropriates all these texts together and uses them to say something. And this Again, Walterstiff points out, has certain implications. This is an example he goes. Suppose someone remarks, you'll get what I want to say if you take what Ruth said just now, along with what Michelle said then, together. Right? Well, if you were to try and understand what I was doing, you would try and discern the whole as a single piece. You wouldn't say, well, what did Michelle say and what did Ruth say on them, their own? You'd say, well, when I bring them together, how is it sensible to understand them? Okay. And so this is the point. We need to read the Bible, can, what theologians call canonically. Second, we are interpreting for what the divine author says with the text. And this is what Walter Storff says about this. How do we interpret a text where one person has appropriated the words of another? Well, Walter Storff says this. 
The fundamental principle is this. The interpreter takes the stance and content of my appropriating discourse to be that of your appropriated discourse, unless there is a good reason to do otherwise. In other words, if I take someone else's text and I use it to say something, you assume that I'm saying what that person said, unless you have good reasons to say otherwise. And then what counts as good reasons? Well, Waldstuff goes on to say is what we want to do is we want to look at the whole biblical text and work out what is the most probable understanding of what God is saying with this text, taking into account all the relevant information. All right, you understand that? You're following that? Let me know because I speak far too fast if you're not. Okay. The point of this, the point of this kind of discourse into, into interpretive stuff is one can't just pull out a single passage of the Bible, offer a really literalistic reading of the text, and then conclude God said X, Y, Z. Right? Instead, you must, the critic has to say, well, look, the most probable reading, the most probable interpretation of this text given everything else in the Bible, given where it sits, given everything else that comes, is that God is commanding this. And we shouldn't let him get away with glib biblical quotations with no attempt to try and do the sensible work of interpreting it. And this is one thing that really disturbs me in that I look at atheist freethinker sites and often they'll just pull these passages out of nowhere and fire them at Christians, and nine times out of ten the Christians will go, oh my goodness, the Bible really says that. You know, and there is so much sloppy reading of the biblical text by Christians that allows skeptics to get away with this. Don't let them get away with it. You know, nine times out of ten, you will see them they've pulled something completely out of context or they've failed to understand what kind of literature they're dealing with. You know, I've had people, I've had skeptics say, Jesus taught you to kill unbelievers. And when I look at it, there's a parable where Jesus says, there's a story of a king where the king wouldn't, people wouldn't obey him, and so he punished them, and some of them were put to death. And they've taken this phrase, some of them were put to death, and said that Christians are committed by Jesus' teaching to kill unbelievers. How on earth do you get that? Out of the, see what I'm saying? And I've, I've had people really in crisis from this. So, you know, learn to be, learn to be skeptics in reverse. Okay. The last point I'll briefly make about this interpretive stuff before I get into more of the philosophical stuff is that it's far from clear that the idea that this text teaches genocide literally is the most plausible reading of the text. Now Rick Hess has said some stuff about this and I know some other people will, so I'll be brief. But recently there's been a lot of scholarship, people like me and Paul Copen have written this, Nicholas Waldersdorf have written this, have pointed out that there's a lot in this account of Joshua which suggests a, slight, a, a different understanding of what's going on. And I'll give you um, some examples. First, while it's true that if you take the, if you take the, the book of Joshua and the, and the Bible as a whole, well, it's true that Joshua 1 to 11 gives an account of events which appears to have God killing everyone in the cities and so on. The rest of the book of Joshua says it didn't literally happen. And the book of Judges says it didn't literally happen. So the authors put two, these two bits next to one another where one which has this language of kill everyone that breathes, leave nothing left alive, and so on. And then the very next part, which says, and now when you go into the land and they're all there. All right? Now, the author's not stupid. This is obvious. These are obvious when you read the book of Joshua carefully. The author's not dumb. So you have to ask yourself, why did he do this? Was he really trying? It's unlikely he intended that to be taken as literal claim of genocide. Secondly, we know that people in this period of time, when they wrote 
histories of battles used massive exaggeration language. A bit like in New Zealand when the All Blacks recently won the World Cup, we talked about how they slaughtered the French. They won by one point. Okay? But everyone says they slaughtered the French, right? If you know the history of French and All Blacks, you understand why, but anyway. Um, okay? And we know this. We know that ancient Near Eastern people used highly exaggerated, hagiographic, hyperbolic accounts, and there's actual common literary uh, motifs in various different accounts where they talk about meteors raining down on cities. They talk about walls collapsing. Okay? They talk about um, the king killing absolutely everybody and leaving nothing alive, and then two pages later, everyone's alive again. Okay, this sort of thing is really, really common. So the point is, is that we need to be a little bit careful about just granting this reading of the text. Okay, the skeptics need, we need to be a little bit careful about just allowing a text to be pulled out of context and the most literalistic reading assumed and no real careful work about, well, what does it go on to say? What kind of literature is this? Are we assuming as Westerners that this is a certain kind of literature because that's how we would have written it? And, you know, be wary of those kinds of assumptions. Because the Bible does come to us through human beings. Jesus talked, taught parables about you know, farming and seeds and all this sort of stuff. Very, very different customs to what we have. So you need to be a little bit careful about reading the text. But that's not going to be my main focus. Um, I've probably said too much about it already. But um, let me my focus. Instead, I want to look at um, some of the philosophical and moral issues raised by this. Let's look at Bradley's third premise. It's morally wrong to command acts that violate moral principle P1. Now I want you to note an ambiguity here that it often occurs in these sorts of things. Ambiguity are two ways of reading this. One, it's morally wrong for human beings to command acts that violate P1. It's morally wrong for any person, including God, to command acts that violate P1. And these aren't the same. You'll have questions later, okay? P1, sure, that was the principle that um, it's wrong to kill innocent people, basically. Okay. Um, right. Now, obviously, for the argument to work, 3B has to be the meaning they're using, right? It's wrong for anyone, including God, to do it. But frequently, when people argue for this, they don't give an argument for 3B. For example, Bradley goes, if you deny 3, you have to agree with Genghis Khan, Hitler, Stalin, Pol Pot. <laughs> But all you need to do to condemn those people is accept the first one, right? 3A, you have to accept that it's wrong for human beings to kill, to command other people to kill innocent people, right? Secondly, if you believe that moral obligations are based on God's commands and God doesn't issue commands to himself, then literally speaking, God has no obligations. So 3B would be false, right? So there is this point too, we need to distinguish between what it's wrong for human beings to do and, and, and the fact that human beings are under obligations, human beings are under the moral law, and God is not. Okay. Now, a lot of people think, well, this is enough. I've often been in situations where people will say, oh, well, you know, God is sovereign. He can do what he likes, and so that solves the problem. It doesn't actually solve the problem entirely, but it does. It's important to note it and to realize that it's part of the response. And the reason for this is that even if you accept um, this point, which I do, the argument can still gain some traction another way. Because someone can claim, well, yeah, okay, maybe God isn't obligated to do this, but surely a morally just, loving person would never command something like this. Surely a being with those kinds of attributes would never do this. 
Um, and Raymond Bradley makes this point. He says, you know, if you say that someone is loving and just, then you can't say they just do anything. That's meaningless. The words love and justice have a certain meaning, and if you make that compatible with anything, you're stretching those terms beyond credulity. All right? Now, Robert Adams develops this point in his um, book, Finite and Infinite Goods, and he uses it to argue that our existing moral beliefs are bound in practice, and I think ought in principle, to be a constraint on our beliefs about what God commands. So Adams says, look, if you're going to say that God is loving and just, you have some understanding of what that means, and that means that you can't therefore attribute to God commands that violate moral principles you accept. If you do that, you're engaging in some kind of... Um, revision of English words. If I say this person is good, and then I also say, oh, by the way, he commands all these things that I recognize as paradigms of evil behavior, then I'm playing word games, right? And so this kind of view of Robert Adams is widely held by skeptics. The idea is that if you ever come across a purported divine command in scripture, and it violates your moral beliefs, and that shows that obviously it's inauthentic, right? And so you get on cases like this, but you also get into more subtle cases like homosexuality or things about gender or sex or whatever. You know, there'll be certain moral beliefs that are widely held. People say, well, look, God would never command something immoral. I believe this is immoral. Therefore, God didn't command it. Um, but the point to note here is that Adams himself and critics of Adams have pointed out that his argument is actually more qualified than it appears. Okay? Because while he states that our existing moral beliefs are a constraint on what we attribute to God, he makes two further qualifications. The first of these is that while we do have some grasp of what a loving and just person would command, our understanding of what love and justice are in all circumstances and so on are fallible. <coughs> right? So while it's true that God doesn't command wrongdoing, it's actually quite likely that a loving and just omniscient being would command something contrary to what we think is wrong. Because if you don't hold that, then you have to hold that you're a perfect moral judge. That you're such a good judge of morality that God would never disagree with you, ever. <laughs> right? And remember, um, Craig Hazen talked about the golden rule this morning. You know, asked us, if a skeptic wants to be a skeptic, why is he so dogmatically certain of his own moral beliefs? And that's a question you need to think about with this issue over and over again. So often... <coughs> We're told God would not command this, he would not command that, because I know that that's wrong. And, and there's this kind of idea that, that, you know, no way God could disagree with him on that moral issue. My goodness. Right. Second, our moral concepts are subject to revision. We change our mind about morality. We debate about it. We argue about it with other people. Right. So this means that, you know, this means that you know, we can't sort of just say, well, God would never do something contrary to my moral beliefs. Because otherwise, what would happen if I changed my moral beliefs? Am I now being inconsistent? Am I now just talking nonsense? Am I now engaging in some kind of revision of words? And so Adams himself goes on to note this when he says that, he goes on to later say, we cannot coherently ascribe to God a set of commands that is too much at variance with the ethical outlook we bring to our ethical thinking. You know, he, go, he says, however, that he wants to allow for the possibility of a conversion in which one's whole ethical outlook is revolutionized and reorganized around a new center, but we can hardly open the possibility of anything too closely approaching a revolution in which good and evil traded places. What he's getting at here is, is this kind of distinction. 
It's not that our existing moral beliefs must place a constraint on what we attribute to God, but rather certain types of moral beliefs. Those that are such that if we were to deny them, we would be essentially making good and evil change places. We would be doing something to our concept of goodness that was so radical that it was, it was no longer meaningful. What would be examples of that? Well, imagine somebody told you that God gave a series of commands and every command he gave was a contradiction of everything you ever believed about morality. Right? He said, go out and kill, go out and torture, go out and rape in all circumstances. You couldn't sensibly claim that a good being would issue commands like that. Right? Right? Um, nor could you sensibly claim that a good being would say, well, look, go and kill people for entertainment. Harming and hurting people are okay. Inflicting suffering for no reason at all is okay. Because those kinds of claims are so central to our understanding of what goodness is that we could never really coherently say that a good being wouldn't command them. They're, they're sort of central. But there are other beliefs which are not so central to our understanding of goodness that we debate about and we can change our opinion on and what have you. Right? Now, what's interesting is the kinds of commands that people complain about in the scripture are not often the kinds that are so central to our understanding of goodness, when you think about it. I'll give you an example. Take this idea that it's wrong to kill innocent people. In contemporary ethics today, there are many ethicists who hold this. I'm not saying I necessarily agree with this, but there are many ethicists who hold that while it's true as a general rule that you should not kill innocent people, this rule can be overridden in really rare, extreme circumstances. You know, and you see this in the debate about the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, right? You see there's some people talk about some of the, the actions that were done by the Allies in World War II. The idea is that there might be certain circumstances which are really rare in which the consequences of not killing are so drastic. Now, the point I want to make is people who hold this, we, don't, we might disagree with them or we might agree with them, but we don't say, look, you completely don't understand goodness. You've adopted a view that's so radical that good and evil have changed places. Right? We think that's a kind of coherent view. We might disagree with it, but we don't think that it's such a departure from our understanding of justice that to be absurd. Right? So the point is, is even the principle that it's wrong to kill innocent people, providing it's, uh, you know, providing in, as, as such that if, you know, that it can actually deny that in certain circumstances coherently. See what I'm saying? Right? So the point is it's not obviously incoherent to saying a loving and just being might on an occasion command someone to kill someone. It might be incoherent to say God gives a command to do this all the time, or there's nothing wrong with killing ever. But it's not incoherent to say a loving and just being on certain rare circumstances for really good reasons that he has suspends that rule occasionally. Okay? It's not necessarily obviously incoherent, which means it's one of those beliefs that we need to be willing to realise, well, look, our beliefs on this are fallible. It's possible we might be wrong. It's possible God might disagree with us on. Right? It's one of those kinds of beliefs. So you might think, okay, that's fine. But So Matt's given this argument that I can coherently claim that, but surely I can never have any good reason for ever thinking that. And this is a famous argument that goes back to the philosopher Immanuel Kant. Now, actually, as I understand it, most people in America and New Zealand and the UK pronounce his name Immanuel Kant. In actual fact, the A is pronounced as a U. But for obvious reasons, nobody does that, and neither will I. Um, I taught philosophy to a high school class where I pronounced it properly, and I never lived it down. So I, I won't do it again. Okay. Um, 
Immanuel Kant discusses the issue of Abraham and Isaac, and he says, Abraham should have replied to the supposedly divine voice, that I ought to not kill my son is quite certain, but that you, this aberration are God, of that I am not certain, and never can be. Not even if, not even is, and if, that's an error from the original, this voice rings down from visible heaven. Okay, this is what, 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 what Kant said. All right. Now, Kant's principle, Kant here assumes a principle, which is whenever two conflicting claims differ in the epistemic status, epistemic is a philosophical word for how justified the belief is or how warranted the belief is, the claim with the lower status is to be rejected. Fairly common sense. You have a conflict between two claims, one says A, one seems to say not A, you reject the one that has the best evidence in favour of it. I mean, you, you accept the one that has the best evidence in favour of it, or the one that's the most justified or whatever, and you reject the one that has the least. Right? Fairly obvious claim. And then Kant goes on, however, to argue that moral claims are always more certain, always more justified than theological claims. You'll notice that with the quote, he says, you know, he says, I'm quite certain of, of this moral belief, something I'm certain of, but that God commanded it, I'm not certain of. And so therefore the sensible thing is even if I could coherently claim that God commanded it, the sensible thing is for me to reject that he did, right? All right so come back to that. Now, the philosopher Philip Quinn has noted two problems with, with this line of argument by Immanuel Kant. First, Kant has an extremely optimistic view of our ability to obtain epistemic certainty about principles of moral wrongness. What he means by this is that Kant assumes that our moral claims are really certain. He kind of says, look, about these kinds of claims we have this really high certainty about it. And I suggest to you that's a bit optimistic to suggest that moral claims are always like that. Now it's true there are some moral claims of which I'm fairly certain. For example, I'm very certain that it's wrong to inflict as much pain as possible on another person merely for entertainment. I'm pretty certain of that. In fact, I'm probably more certain of that than many things scientists tell me. Um, which is interesting when people try and argue to me on scientific grounds I should project morality. But, um, you know, I'm fairly certain that killing, assault, theft and lying are in general wrong in most circumstances. However, what about my beliefs on capital punishment? Am I certain about them? What about my beliefs about affirmative action or welfare? I think it would be really dogmatic to assume that you could be certain about those kinds of things. Right? And the point is there are some moral beliefs we're certain about, but there are some moral beliefs that are actually quite contentious and there's a lot of debate about. So you can't just go around assuming that your moral claims are, are really certain and, and theological claims are not. Secondly, Kant assumes that while moral claims are certain, theological claims could never be. You could never be certain of a theological claim. But that seems at least abstractly false. And Quinn notes this. He said, it would thus seem to be well within God's power to communicate to us a sign that confers on the claim that God commands some intolerant behaviour, for example, issuing threats to heretic, a fairly high epistemic status. Now, he's not saying God did this, but he's saying this is possible, surely. Surely there could be situations in which God would communicate someone to something and that person was, was fairly sure he'd got to do it, right? Um, so this idea that moral claims are always certain and theological claims can never be certain seems to be false, you know? And in fact, I just want to point this out to you, and I think this is something that, that, that people need to think about. Many of the sceptical worries people raise about God's commands actually apply with equal force to moral beliefs. I don't know if you've noticed this. 
But people are often very skeptical about claiming that God commanded something. But yet the, often the same skeptical issues they raise, or the same problems they raise about theological claims, can be raised about moral claims. I'll give you three examples. One, you often hear people say, well look, God, God doesn't exist because he's not necessary to explain anything. You know, we don't need him to explain any sort of phenomena in the world. You know, you'll hear people who are into science argue this. The problem is, is you don't need to say that moral obligations exist to explain anything in the world either. People will say, you can't empirically test with your senses the claim that God existed. You can't empirically test with your senses the claim that rape is wrong either. All right? You know? Um, people say, there's so many different religions in the world. It's arbitrary to believe one. Guess what? Most of you Westerners in this world have moral beliefs that are completely at odds with the people in Saudi Arabia. Right? We have moral pluralism as well. So the very issues that people raise against religion on the basis of theology can be raised again. And so on. You know? um, people say, oh look, but you know, you can't accept people's religious experiences because there's so many different conceptions of what God is. If you study contemporary secular ethics today, you will find there is a massive amount of debate about what the nature of moral obligations are. Right? Um, and so on. In fact, it's interesting when Kant offers this argument, this is the argument he gives as to why you should be skeptical of theological claims. He says, the revelation reached the person only through the intermediary of human beings and their interpretation. And even if it were possible that it had come from God, it's also, even, even if it appears to him to come from God, it's possible that he's made a mistake. So Kant's two reasons are, well, you learnt this through other people, and secondly, it's possible you're wrong. Isn't that true of moral claims? You learnt most of them from other people, and it's possible that you're wrong. Right. So the issue here is, is we shouldn't assume that people's moral claims are always more certain than theological claims. So if I was to return to the original problem, I think the, the, the four sketches I've made are, are simply this, is that firstly, this is an argument against biblical inerrancy. It's not an argument against the existence of God or against the idea that God grounds morality. So there needs to be that focus. It doesn't prove as much as a skeptic thinks, even if it were true. Secondly, we can't assume, in two, a literal reading of a text taken in us in a single one-liner is automatically the case. We need to be a little bit more skeptical about the moral claims people make about what the text says. And thirdly, we need to be willing to be skeptical about some of the moral beliefs we bring to the text, and we need to be willing to challenge the skeptic to not be a semi-skeptic and play skeptical games and objections about theological claims, and then let him go away with not making the same skeptical moves against the moral beliefs he's demanding, he's rejecting God on the basis of. You know, it doesn't necessarily give you answers to all the specific questions, but I think it's a framework and a way of thinking about this, and I encourage you to then look into some of these questions yourself, think about these things, and really develop in your mind answers to how people are going to ask you about them. Thank you. Biola University offers a variety of biblically-centered degree programs, ranging from business to ministry to the arts and sciences. Visit biola.edu to find out how Biola could make a difference in your life.